You're listening to the Politics Theory Other podcast. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Amber Hussein. We spoke about Amber's new book, Meat Love, An Ideology of the Flesh. We talked about whether it's possible for there to be such a thing as ethical meat, why Amber thinks veganism need not be solely about lifestyle and personal consumption choices, as is commonly argued by left critics of veganism. And we also talked about King Charles, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, and other lovers of small-scale animal farming, and how they invoke notions of love and care, classical tragedy, and the timeless circle of life to argue for the continued consumption of animal flesh. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles, perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Free Them All, A Feminist Call to Abolish the Prison System, by Guanola Ricordo. How does the criminal justice system affect women's lives? Do prisons keep women safe? Should feminists rely on policing and the law to achieve women's liberation? The mainstream feminist movement has called on prisons, the legal system, and the state to protect women from misogynist violence. This carceral approach to feminism, activist and scholar Gwenola Ricordo argues, does not make women safer. It harms women, including victims of violence, and in particular people of colour, poor people, and LGBTQ people. Her new book, Free Them All, A Feminist Call to Abolish the Prison System, draws from two decades as an abolitionist activist and scholar to describe how the criminal justice system hurts women. Considering the position of survivors of violence, criminalised women and women with criminalised relatives, Ricardo charts a new path to emancipation without incarceration. Free Them All, a feminist call to abolish the prison system by Granola Ricardo, includes a new foreword by Silvia Federici and is out now from Verso Books. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your August reading if you join the Verso Book Club. And now to today's interview. Amber Hussein is a writer, researcher and cultural critic. She's the author of Replace Me, and her essays have appeared in The Baffler, The Believer, Granter, Los Angeles Review of Books, The London Review of Books, New Left Review, New York Times Magazine, and The White Review. Meet Love, An Ideology of the Flesh is her second book. So in the introduction to the book, you touch on your own experience of becoming a vegan and how you went from being a, a fairly enthusiastic carnivore and even someone somewhat given to mocking vegans uh, to mm. eventually giving up on consuming so-called animal products entirely. Before we get into uh, the meat of the book, so to speak, um, <laughs> could you explain what led you to become a vegan? Yeah, so yeah, in as much as this book is a kind of political inquiry, I think it is important to disclaim that I did come to it as a kind of accidental vegan, I suppose. I didn't really develop any kind of coherent politics around meat, in fact, until I'd sort of inadvertently stopped eating it. And that was simply because I was living with a vegan or my boyfriend was vegan. And I did, as you say, roundly mock him for a while, but eventually, <laughs> eventually just sort of, that, it's just, I think on the one hand, it's exposure to somebody who sees, sees meat or sees things, sees animals a different way from, from you do, but then also just that kind of acclimatizing to eating differently eventually led me to experience meat in a very different way. 
you know, it's hard to see meat as animal flesh when it has been so successfully culturally abstracted and also kind of loaded with all kinds of other significances that eclipse maybe what it is more fundamentally. But once I had stopped eating meat inadvertently, that sort of familiar abstraction was sort of defamiliarized. And I, you know, I was sort of forced to look at it. I don't want to say for what it really was, but I guess, you know, as an animal corpse, if you want to put it that way. And it was, yeah, from then I felt like I couldn't really get away from in the way that I had been before, exempting the idea of exploitation and consumption or whatever from meat eating or from my kind of anti-exploitative sentiments or values more generally, if that makes sense. It seemed like meat had been an exception and now it kind of couldn't really be an exception anymore. But that said, you know, being able to understand or, you know, being able to consider the idea that there might be violence involved in, you know, your diet or to think of meat production and consumption in terms of, I suppose, capitalist violence more broadly, it still wasn't enough to make me feel at ease with the label vegan. And I think in in a sense, like this book is born of the attempt to grapple with that. I think, you know, like a lot of leftists, I was very skeptical of any kind of supposedly political stance that seemed primarily concerned with consumer choices. But then at the same time, I think I'd also internalized a lot of bad faith arguments about meat as a necessity, you know, in order to feed everyone in the world and veganism as a kind of necessarily middle class privilege. So... Yeah, it's taken a while to try and sort the useful scepticism from the nonsense. Um, And, you know, to take seriously the idea that there might be a role for not eating meat within a kind of larger materialist anti-capitalist project without determining in advance what that role might be. And maybe that's kind of my problem with the term veganism is that there's a lot of assumptions rolled into it often that seem to kind of predetermine some kind of like moral or political code. So this book is kind of an attempt to go beneath that a little bit to kind of question and understand how defences of meat eating in the name of good politics get their legitimacy. So on that point about the way in which people on the left have often critiqued veganism in terms of it being, as you say, about consumer choices, about adopting a certain lifestyle and coming to the issue of animal rights with a fundamentally liberal perspective, you write in the book that critical theorists have tended to pit the vegan lifestyle choice against the commitment to an alternative social model. In the view of Marxist animal rights activist Marco Maurizzi, for instance, the problem is simply that veganism is not a mode of production. No number of virtuous eaters excising meat from their personal menus equates to a transformation of the capitalist food system. Instead of fighting the ideas of individuals, Maurizzi writes, a politics aimed at an equal and just relationship between animals and humans should attack the material structure of society that generates those ideas in the first place. Can you explain where you disagree with Maurizzi? Yeah, sure. I think there is an extent to which... I agree. And I think that slogan is a powerful one. Veganism is not a mode of production. And I think it kind of very neatly critiques a certain kind of veganism, which, as you say, is very concerned with with lifestyle. At the same time, I don't think that what a person eats or kind of more generally their relationship 
with animals can necessarily be reduced to a consumer choice because there is so much more involved in the act of eating than simply choosing what to what to buy in order to cook and eat if that makes sense what i'm getting at here is I suppose if you take a step back and confront what feels like a bit of an absurdity, this idea that we could be politically for the liberation of animals or, you know, understanding animals as a class and wanting to end their exploitation and liberate animals as part of a kind of um, abolition of class society. If you confront the surface level contradiction there, the idea that it's still okay to want to kill and eat them because ultimately it doesn't really make much difference to anything. I suppose if we come at the question with a commitment to resolving that contradiction rather than just accepting it, you know, I think we'll we'll find that there are many ways in which the way that we daily practice a certain relationship with or orientation towards animals can be an important part of our politicisation. And that's certainly, you know, what I found in in the sense of, um, you know, politicization in the sense of kind of consciousness raising, a kind of shaping of desire in a different direction, maybe. And I think that eating can be quite powerful in that sense, because it is so much to do with pleasure and disgust. And I, I feel like that was kind of borne out in my own experience slightly in that, you know, I had this vague inkling that I... I wanted to be able to, you know, engage more seriously with the politics of meat eating. But there was a barrier there when it was so much kind of a part of my social life, you know, just things that seem to make life feel, (laughs) I don't want to say worth living because I never loved meat that much. But, you know, just, you know, that's part of like living a full and good and flourishing human life, whatever. Mm. And, and becoming vegan, I think one of the first things people often experience is it, it seems to involve a lot of inconvenience. You know, you look at the menu and, and there's, there's you know, yeah. uh, not much there to eat and, and so on, you know, depending yeah. on where you are in the world. But but yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, depending on where you are in the world. But like, yeah, what kind of person does that make you? And yada, yada, yada. Also, the kind of morality around it can be quite suffocating, I think, when that's your experience and you're being just told to stop doing something um, because it, you know, makes you a bad person if you don't do it. it I think it can be a sort of barrier to politicizing people. And what I found was that without any of that kind of moral baggage, when it had just happened by stealth that I started to find meat kind of disgusting and stopped wanting it, that it really liberated me to to think more seriously about the politics of meat, but also to expand my imagination a bit to start asking different questions. I think often the questions that get asked when we're litigating the ethics or politics of meat, they start from a place of assuming that we need to defend the status quo for various reasons and kind of working backwards from there, you know, starting from a place of how do we make it so that nobody feels like they're missing out on anything, you know, rather than thinking how might people come to want something different, you know, rather than assuming that meat is always the thing which everybody is always going to desire, I suppose. Yes, and perhaps there's a bit of a parallel there with some of the more hardline of the so-called eco-modernists, certain writers who seem to want to insist that levels of consumption, say, in somewhere like the United States or Western Europe, ought to remain pretty elevated for people in general, if if not for elites, because their conception of, of flourishing and fulfilment is so tied to a particular model of consumption. 
And as you say, there doesn't seem to be enough thought about, well, we could have different ones. It's possible to have different kind of desires, which might involve perhaps more communal forms of infrastructure with different levels of energy consumption and material throughput and so on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the first chapter of the book is titled Tragedy. And you begin by discussing the art critic and novelist John Berger's work, specifically his 1979 novel Pig Earth and the associated BBC documentary. And you describe how Berger wrote about the decline of the peasant farming economy and how at the time he was writing, both industrial workers and middle class diners alike were becoming increasingly insulated from the brutal realities of farming. But you then describe how in recent years we've seen the emergence of what you describe as a media movement consisting of celebrity cooks and social media influencers who are seeking ostensibly to reconnect with nature and with farming and who do not try to disguise the fact that meat eating is a bloody business involving death and to an extent suffering, even if they emphasise that the animals they consume are better treated than those that are factory farmed. And you take the example of Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's 1999 TV series, Escape to River Cottage, in which he moves from London to Dorset to take up this life of small-scale farming. And you describe how, perhaps unsurprisingly for an alumnus of Eton College and Oxford University, in the series he was given to presenting the rearing of animals at River Cottage with reference to classical tragedy. And you point out how, although in some respects Fernley Whittingstall's narrative echoes the arc of classical tragedy, in important and and telling ways, it deviates from the conventions of the genre. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, so basically, this um, kind of gets to the heart of what what I'm doing with the book in terms of trying to understand how defences of of meat eating get legitimised in the name of not just good politics, but also virtue and intellectual sophistication. You know, Berger was talking about how at a time of rapid industrialization and the eradication of of a peasant class, that both the urban working class and the middle classes had become estranged from the origins of our food. And he kind of saw things going in this direction further and further and further. Whereas what I'm talking about in the book is this kind of unexpected, perhaps, realisation that this is happening, which I locate kind of around the 90s, but it's, it's an ongoing process of trying to rectify the problem by getting people to really engage with where their food comes from and engage with it in this kind of very almost feels very kind of like profound way like we're all going to take a moment and uh really like confront the brutality of what goes on with me but the idea is to confront it not in order to sort of do anything about it on the scale of serious transformation the idea is mainly to yeah take a long hard look at it in order that we can feel like we've really appreciated what's happening and continue to do what we were doing before basically what we are invited to do is to clean up our meat eating i suppose uh, by trying to do it in a more ethical and high-minded way and of course the class politics of this are kind of significant in that, as you say, often the advocates of this kind of ethic are um, middle or upper class people with, with a large stake, either in the ethical meat industry or, you know, in with a stake in meat somehow, encouraging people to emulate a kind of lost peasant class aesthetic in a very nostalgic way. 
while obscuring the fact that the relationship of necessity that characterizes traditional peasant relationship with an animal that they might have to kill is completely different from what we're doing as urban middle class individuals when we're buying meat that is labeled as lovingly reared in the beautiful pastures and so on. So yeah, you, you have shows like Escape to River Cottage, which is, you know, don't get me wrong, it's a cracking show. It's really entertaining. It's kind of fun. It's a bit tongue in cheek. Hugh Fernley Whittingstall obviously knows that he's not a peasant, even if he's dressing up as one and staging this situation where he's a small holder beholden to all these kinds of the whims of nature and he has these pigs and he absolutely adores them but you know he's got to send them to the abattoir and it's this this whole thing this whole pig episode which in a way is quite redolent of this episode in John Burge's book uh, where a peasant family has to kill their pig is presented as this you know very poignant moment and there are all these kind of staging points in the episode which follow the the trajectory of of a of a greek tragedy of this kind of like deliberation and you know recognition and a and a reversal of fortune and yada 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 but at the end of the day there's this kind of presentation of there never having been a victim in a way we're, we're spared the most dramatic elements of tragedy because you know ultimately the pigs are presented as really fortunate they would they had such a happy life and you know Hugh is, and all involved in the killing of the pig are especially humane in the way that they dispatch them like there was never any question of whether they would be killed at all there was never any question of whether there was a necessity specifically for this type of person and it's just kind of like you know, I think there's an issue of reception as well, because you see these kind of spin-offs today of, of of River Cottage being made by people of a similar socioeconomic background, but without any of the irony. And and you you know, you hear people talk about how respectful they are to animal life, for example, by by eating nose to tail, by a similar logic, without any kind of remnants of class consciousness or, you know, readiness to think about the political economy of meat more broadly and how the ethical meat industry fits in within a bigger economic system or social order. Like, I mean, we can get into that, but obviously, um, you know, creating a niche industry is not is not going to do anything about the kind of economic need for cheaper and cheaper meat or um, the inability of a huge class fraction to be able to feed themselves any other way than by buying cheap meat. Do you think that part of what's going on with this media movement and people like Fernley Whittingstall and, as you say, the uh, rather worse people who've come after him, do you think that part <laughs> of it is somewhat straightforwardly a middle class disdain for working class people and, and the things that they consume since the consumption of processed meat became particularly identified with the working class and that this partly explains why there develops this desire on the part of some middle class people to identify with smallholders, or with the peasantry, or, or even more remarkably with uh, indigenous peoples, which is something else you describe. When, as you say, regarding the peasantry, that really does skate over how radically different the economic life of the middle classes is, as compared with uh, either the peasantry or, or indigenous people. Yeah, it's pretty out there, isn't it? I, do, I, do, I, um, 
I mean, I don't want to speculate too much on on sort of the social psychology of it, but definitely within the, you know, within the discourse, there is a very detectable disdain often for people who are eating cheap meat and how cruel it is uh, in a way that is very coded in class terms. There's also, yeah, rolled into that is that this idea of excess, how people are eating way too much meat. And if we could just, you know, anybody could afford to to eat this way if they just ate, ate less meat. Not considering the fact that for some people that might just mean literally eating less. Like, um, and, you know, it's on the level of consumption and also production. Like there are sort of contemporary, very well-off smallholders, some of them making a lot of their money on Instagram and through sponsorship deals who refer to themselves as like first generation farmers. And often the way that they talk about factory farmers is, yeah, very moralizing and kind of refers to a dearth of intelligence. Like if these people just understood, you know, the right way to do farming, you know, if everybody did it a bit more like me, it would all be fine. Again, with complete disregard for the fact that you know, agriculture within the capitalist system is geared towards economies of scale. And not everybody has the resources to make a small farm profitable. And yeah, so I mean, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of class moralizing discourse around and and sort of like virtue signaling around this claiming of um, ethical meat as the as the the kind of noble thing to do but then you know at the same time I feel like there are some very understandable impulses and and kind of laudable impulses behind it as well in some sense there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a more caring relationship with animals than not thinking about it at all I think that in many cases there are a lot of bad faith arguments defending meat but at the same time I'm not I'm not saying that a lot of people who are into ethical meat don't genuinely care about animals and you know that that may often be the the guiding impulse um and some people will progress from the consumption of small farm raised animals to not consuming animals at all right presumably that's a pathway to veganism for some people yeah i mean that that definitely seems plausible but I think there's also on the you know on the flip side of that there is the risk that it becomes a kind of end in itself that you know there is this feeling of virtue that that sort of forecloses any kind of deeper thinking or kind of more broader imagination around how we might transform our relationship with animal life and I suppose a foreclosure of a readiness to interrogate the meaning of care or the meaning of love. And whether or not these are actually the best principles around which to organise our social and economic relations with animals. You know, a lot of terrible things can be done in the name of care and in the name of love. So, you know, even if there is a real existence of love in somebody's relationship with animals that they're killing or eating, doesn't necessarily mean that there is justice for those animals. You know, it depends what kind of framework you're looking at it. From a political perspective, I think those those concepts are actually pretty insubstantial and potentially actually unhelpful. You say that not everyone can afford to be a small farmer, but it's not even clear that these individuals can afford it themselves because, as you point out in the book, these are media personalities, they're social media influencers or motivational speakers and all this kind of thing. So it is, like you say, it's kind of radically unlikely that you could generalise this model of, of small-scale farming. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's kind of what I mean by afford. Like there, there often have to be other things subsidizing that way of of doing things oh yeah I mean yeah it just speaks to like it speaks to the need to consider more broadly and on a larger scale what it even means that we have a meat industry and factory farming and corporate animal agriculture is very heavily subsidized as it is but yeah I think the fact that it has mushroomed to the the scale of, of the scale of production that it has, but also the kind of depth of brutality that it involves is testament to something something more fundamental about a capitalist economy and uh, a capitalist social order and therefore a capitalist food system that relies for its profitability on the kind of progressive cheapening of labor and the cheapening of life and you know you see that in in kind of working conditions for factory farmers abattoir workers and you know all kinds of people who are involved in the production of meat but also you know obviously in 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 terms of animal life that kind of like cheapening of life that that ultimately culminates in in meat So the second chapter of the book begins by discussing King Charles, as I suppose we have to call him now, and his 2010 book, Harmony, A New Way of Looking at the World, which very much aligns him with these notions of timeless animal husbandry and the supposedly uh, self-regulating circular character of small-scale farming that is discussed elsewhere in the book. Can you outline what Charles's conception of harmony consists of and his claim that farming animals need not be exploitative? Yeah. Um, so King Charles. The- <laughs> I still, still can't hear that without laughing. Sorry, please continue. Our king um, wrote, wrote our dear wrote, beloved king wrote yes. this fabulous book, kind of laying out the principles behind Dutchy home farm or the organic farm. I think yeah, there's this idea that he kind of like spearheaded organic farming to some degree you know maybe maybe there's something in that but this idea that like anything we do to this earth and the creatures on it can be justified if it seems to conform to certain ancient principles and there's a lot of kind of uh sacred geometry is used to sort of illustrate this book and you know references to the golden ratio and these kind of like seemingly completely unideological almost primordial principles that justify conveniently us using animals for our own pleasure and profit. And there is this idea that that humans have always had this like harmonious relationship with animals and that it's very symbiotic. You know, we give them something in return for what we take from them. There's often this implication that because we give animals shelter maybe or whatever it is that we're supposed to be giving them that we're therefore justified in kind of helping themselves not just to their labor but like actually to their flesh and in some ways like some of these arguments become quite convincing like agricultural systems because they can be complicated like it it is it is easy to paint this picture in which a very particular relationship with animals seems to be a kind of necessity if we are to feed the world sustainably you know like we need animals to shit on the ground and stuff in order for that ground to become fertile and you know we need them to graze and you know da 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 but the gaps are never filled in I suppose as to whether it's truly necessary that are needing the animals to 
you know are needing their like their poop and and their their grazing necessarily needs to lead to us farming and and killing them in the way that we do obviously again this is kind of a question of long-term medium short-term horizons but in terms of you know how to make things work under the economic system that we have like maybe there is some degree of truth in this but like there is a kind of unwillingness to think about what kind of alternative order we might want to live under and how things you know how we might relate to our custodianship of nature or our capacity to take care for for animals without necessarily exploiting that relationship by taking what we've already decided we deserve from it and framing that as though the animals are willingly participating in this relationship. There's a lot of talk of mutuality in that discussion of harmony and symbiosis, whereas obviously, you know, the relationship is clearly unequal. And, you know, what what might it look like to seriously consider animals' needs and what, what they might need or want from us? Very funny, like Charles refers a lot to Pythagoras and the the kind of like mathematical Pythagorean principles of harmony, while completely ignoring the fact that like the actual Pythagoras, the original Pythagoras, part of his philosophy of harmony involved an early early adoption of vegetarianism which was very influential and actually like a lot of um, Pythagorean inspired social movements in the intervening centuries I mean in the 19th century it was like Pythagoreans who established the first animal rights organizations because they connected making meat out of animals with the kind of class politics of industrialization so yeah it's interesting there are some interesting interesting lacunae there are some interesting gaps in this uh, account of ancient wisdom and ancient aesthetics in order to paint a very partial view of a harmonious world order that as i say like conveniently involves the perpetuation of a particular industry <laughs> On that point about the way in which it's suggested that animals in some sense have chosen to be part of this symbiotic and supposedly mutually beneficial relationship because they get some kind of care and and, and shelter in return and so on. Do you have any sense of how they understand that argument historically? You know, at what what point is choice supposed to have entered the equation or is this the sort of choice that is continually being remade? Because it, it just seems such a transparently self-serving argument and and obviously over time animals have been bred to be more docile and to be more manageable and like I say how do they sort of articulate that claim around choice is there anything more to it than just the bold statement that the animals benefit from this relationship too yeah it's funny there's this kind of like seemingly quite backwards logic of describing something that we have made to be the case i.e the domestication of animals such that they you know we produce a certain need in animals and then invoke that need in, in order to justify you know continuing to do whatever we want with them which does seem disingenuous but i suppose the roots are are historically deep enough that perhaps it does seem like it is a kind of inevitable primordial relationship that was always is going to have been that way you know there's a lot of discussion of evolution in in the justification of of meat eating is like part of what it makes us to be human and i think yeah there is a lot of kind of essentialism around what animals are what humans are that does completely mystify yeah the i suppose yeah the social relationship that we that we have with animals and how things have come to be this way you know in order to serve our interests as humans yeah it's a, it's a funny one for sure 
On that term, animal husbandry, which has obvious patriarchal resonances, can you talk about some of the parallels you see between this kind of gentlemanly farming and the control of women by men, historically often justified and couched in terms of of care and of love, of course? Yeah, I mean, I want to be careful here because there is a danger around sort of like simply drawing equivalences between like what is done to animals and what is done to women as though they were the same. But at the same time, you know, there is clearly like a common, as you say, there is a kind of patriarchal root. And in the book, I try and describe a bit more how how there's a kind of patriarchal capitalist dynamic going on in the way that women and animals are sexually exploited. And I suppose it also comes back to that idea of willingness of love of the love between an an animal who is being killed and the human who is killing it being mutual i mentioned in the book you know a comment in uh, amia srinivasan the philosopher's essay on bestiality how this kind of conflation of of animal pleasure with animal consent has i don't again i don't want to misquote her but like it's a sort of commonplace um, that we see also in rape apologism, this idea that like if somebody takes pleasure in something, then it means that they necessarily or that they they consented to it in some way that implies like, that there was no abuse of power. And, you know, like we we see in, in animal husbandry, which, again, it seems to refer to something very genteel, but like however you look at it. A cow, for example, is not going to produce the amount of milk that you want it to produce unless you're repeatedly inseminating it by force over and over again. I think it's kind of widely known that there is something in the industry known as a rape rack onto which the yeah the cow is um, forced in order that they can be inseminated with a breeding gun manually, which is it's not something you can do gently, put it that way. And it's very easy to imagine that these kinds of processes are very synced up with nature because of the way that we've naturalized reproduction generally. Whereas when you look at it, it's not that these creatures' lives are in any way synced with, you know, it's, there's a lot of talk of this like circle of life in this harmony narrative. And yeah, as I kind of say in the book, these animals' lives are much, much more synced up with cycles of production than with the circle of life. They're breeding on the clock of agricultural production rather than on some kind of cosmic calendar. Veering off the topic of meat a little bit, it's all kind of part of the same the same system of exploitation, whether that is for animal labour or whether it's for animal reproductivity. Yeah, which obviously has some some parallels in sexual exploitation of women. Further on the theme of dependency, you go on to write that if our own dependency on animal life forms the anxious undercurrent of our insistence that they depend on us, it makes sense that we would swallow it all down. We swallow to insist that we will not ourselves be swallowed, neither by helplessness nor guilt. Recognition of our dependency, our lack of self-sufficient freedom, provokes us into all manner of contortions to justify clawing at the freedom of others. Can you explain what you're getting at here? Yeah, I think, you know, this is we're getting to the part in the book where I'm trying to be a bit less brutal and a bit more understanding of how we've got to this point. You know, there are a lot of things in what I call the ideology of meat love. There are a lot of maneuvers that are quite ripe for ridicule, that are absurd and ridiculous and that could very easily be read as quite pernicious and entitled 
But at the same time, you know, as I say, there is some good faith in there, but also there's a material context in which it becomes very understandable that we would want to cling to whatever pleasures or power we have left. You know, I don't refer to this explicitly in the book, but one could potentially connect this kind of like delusion of solidarity with a lost peasantry, however nostalgic that may actually be, with what is described as the kind of neo-feudal landscape of contemporary capitalism. I know that that's merely one way of looking at the conditions that we live under. But I mean, it is fair to say that increasingly, even for large sections of the middle classes, you know, life life is increasingly hard. Like, a, you know, unless you are an arch capitalist, <laughs> um, you're probably being expropriated from in lots of ways. You know, living becomes harder and harder. You know, we do feel like maybe we're being exploited. We're the ones who are being exploited and extracted from and that therefore this justifies a kind of entitlement to whatever is left to us in this world. And if that is like a burger then great and if it's like if we're able to to consume in a conscious and loving way then you know it almost seems like you know it can almost feel like we're doing more than our bit in a sense so I suppose that's yeah that's kind of my an attempt to kind of look at this whole thing less in terms of blaming individuals who have somehow you know through some failing succumbed to bad faith rhetoric than to sort of look at the conditions under which this kind of rhetoric is able to flourish there's these kinds of ideologies that like you know maybe there are ways that we can we who who want to live in a good way can continue to eat meat because it just seems it just seems unfair <laughs> that like you know given how difficult everything else is that we should be having our diets policed as well yeah so i think that's basically what i'm getting at on that point about feudalism i suppose because as, as i think you're alluding to there there's a big sort of debate on the left around whether it makes sense to characterize our current condition as capitalism or, or neo-feudalism but I suppose even if one comes down on the side of regarding the situation still as a capitalist one, like you say, there's a reason people are talking about feudalism, right? Because people's material conditions are just so poor and, and precarious at the moment and subject to continual deterioration. It's a feudal vibe. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On that point about people wanting to continue to consume meat because it's one of the few apparent pleasures in life in, in a world of sort of diminishing horizons, do you think that people concerned with with animals the vegan movement or the or the animal rights movement more broadly should perhaps spend a bit more time focusing on this question of of how we might cultivate new desires or or make new desires seem possible rather than solely on the side of sort of cultivating disgust or moral culpability yeah i mean i definitely think that there is a really important place for it given the extent to which moralism and moralizing discourse can paralyze people politically, paralyze the political imagination. I guess like what I'm trying to get at in, in the book in terms of grappling with how we reconcile the need for material social transformation and like genuinely, you know, a new mode of production with the fact that the, the eating of animals seems to be significant as, as more than just a consumer choice. I, I, I guess where I get to is you know perhaps that you know we should or we might want to think about changing the way that we eat if we can or you know to the extent that we can or in other ways changing our relationship with with animals if that's not accessible not because it's like morally 
dirtying to continue to eat them. But just because it seems unlikely that we're going to be able to transform the human social relationship with animals. This is like beyond our relationship with each other and with the capitalist mode of production. If we're, if we're completely psychologically dependent on continuing to exploit animals for our daily pleasures, you know, it just seems kind of implausible. And that's what I'm getting at again when I say that I think eating can be a politicizing thing. Because if, if, if we can liberate ourselves from that kind of like psychological and I guess yeah, to some extent physical dependency by changing what gives us pleasure and changing, you know, the things that we build a livable, our sense of a livable life around, then we are going to be more open to transforming the social order and transforming the food system and so on and so forth in a ways that extends the challenging of class politics or the abolition of a class hierarchy to animal life as well. That's what I'm getting at there. The last chapter of the book is titled Beauty, and in that chapter you write about so-called nose-to-tail dining, where pretty much every part of the killed animal is made use of, and, and in particular you discuss the Tuscan master butcher and restaurateur Dario Caccini and his propensity for talking about cuts of meat in terms of their beauty, as well as the beauty supposedly inherent in making use of all of the animal which you argue entails for Caccini values such as appreciation, gratitude, responsibility and, and sacrifice. And you write that ethical values eminently convertible to exchange value in a market of guilty consumers often misdirect our perception of what we should feel guilty about. Is your point here that people like Caccini misdirect us into being preoccupied with wastefulness or, or lack of gratitude rather than being concerned with the actual welfare of the animals being killed. Yeah, basically there is this kind of, again, I think it comes back to the idea of creating a morality around ethical meat eating that becomes an end in itself. And I think, I think you just described it quite well that, yeah, questions of guilt around how we're eating meat become the kind of like, become the end point of discussion rather than deeper questions of, not whether maybe we as individuals should be should be eating meat, but whether meat should be being produced at all. And yeah, I think that in the kind of culture of nose to tail dining, a lot of mystifications of kinds of value take place through the fact that this dining culture has become so steeped in an aesthetic that that makes something beautiful out of roughness, out of this evocation of rustic peasant chic, I suppose, for extremely well-heeled customers and diners. So I talk about that Tuscan butcher's shop turned into a restaurant which has a, you know, has an episode of Chef's Table devoted to it. But then there are also restaurants like St. John in London and lots of restaurants from the kind of farm to table movement in the US. And yeah, others across Europe where this kind of peasant roughness is being sold to quite rich middle class diners also with a certain element of cultural capital, cultural cachet. Yeah, so where the the pig's ears are made to seem aesthetically sophisticated and somehow this becomes rolled in with this idea 
of valuing animal life so the intrinsic value of an animal's life gets kind of like mixed up with the use value of food as it might actually have been for a peasant and then like the exchange value of the commodity that is this kind of fine dining experience yeah and and I think beauty yeah beauty does a huge amount of ideological work there because also we associate sometimes associate virtue with beauty or so, as well as associating pursuit of of higher pleasures with beauty but yeah ultimately if we're actually thinking about respecting animal life to the extent that we're not squandering it like we might want to think about whether or not those diners actually need to need a whole pig to be killed in the first place it's not exactly the same as eating the whole pig that had to be killed in order to to survive in a situation of subsistence farming and yeah i guess what i'm getting at as well in that chapter with the idea of beauty and and minimization of of meat eating is that it it is patently it's like patently absurd where you have entire restaurants dedicated to meat and a whole foodie culture that revolves around how good we are at cooking and eating meat and how good we are at talking about it you know it's clearly fueling an appetite fueling a carnivorous appetite to some extent even if there is a kind of superficial veneer of thriftiness and respect and you know all of the rest of it which is not to say, you know, that food shouldn't be pleasurable and that we can't wallow in this sense of infinite pleasure. But like, does that have to come from animals? And if it does, can we really call it thrifty? <laughs> Further on the theme of nose to tail dining. So in the same chapter, you discuss the 1974 horror film Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you recount, and, and it's a long time since I saw the film, so I'd, I'd forgotten this that the hitchhiker in the film and, and the family of, of perpetrators are former workers at a nearby abattoir. Can you talk about the film a little and why you think the murder and dismembering and nose-to-tail consumption of human beings depicted in the film is useful for thinking about the consumption of animals, which I imagine will seem pretty provocative to people? Yeah, so the first film in the Texas, what would become the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise is set in the midst of the oil crisis um, in America. And you've got this group of middle class teenagers passing through a town where these abattoir workers have basically been put out of their jobs because of certain technological introductions. Instead of using sledgehammers to kill the animals, they're like stunning them and stuff and so there's these there's yeah this kind of family of dispossessed abattoir workers who have taken to chasing around teenagers with a sledgehammer not so that they not yet not actually just for i think there are there are kind of two kinds of cannibal movie aren't there there's like the ones where people do it for you know pure sadism or there's like sexual pleasure and then there's like this whole thing around using yeah, like using human skin or like eating human meat because you need it to survive. And that's the kind of, that's the category that Texas Chainsaw Massacre falls under is the latter one. There is this whole kind of class narrative going on. And there's, there's all kinds of like aesthetic choices in there as well that kind of seem to try and connect the, when the chainsaw wielding dude, he's called Leatherface, is running around after these screaming teenagers there's like bits where their screams are intercut with the sounds of animals freaking out in an abattoir. So yeah, it's not a very light, it's a, it's a heavy handed connection that is being made. 
But basically, there are a lot of, I mean, we're seeing now a lot of eat the rich films, cannibal films that kind of do the opposite thing in a way and in kind of just reducing rich people to a species that we might, you know, want to take pleasure in eating as a sort of like stand in for the kind of class analysis that maybe films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre were trying to do by rather than just taking the species order as a given, using the kind of analogy with eating human meat to kind of question what is going on politically in in the production of meat from animals. So there's there's this sense that the way that the animals are being used, there's like a parallel with the way that the workers are being used. And that there's more to it, I suppose, than, than just revenge. There's a kind of exposition of the the cost i suppose like the human cost of having this system of meat production and a reframing of what might be read as just like straightforward revenge as kind of the inevitable product of something a system that will make meat of whatever it can because it is predicated on brutal competition basically going back to the theme of beauty You discuss the perspective of Simone Weil, the French philosopher, mystic and labour activist, and you write that, For Simone Weil, our inability to look at something beautiful and eat it at the same time was the greatest sorrow of human life. Only in heaven, thought Weil, might we eventually do both. What for you are the implications of that perspective? So yeah, this is a provocation that I use to question the idea that aestheticizing something, making meat into a precious, beautiful object is necessarily going to entail treating the life that gave way to that meat as something precious in the sense of something that we might actually develop a more sparing relationship with. So what I mean is, is treating something as beautiful actually going to lead to us consuming less of it in the simplest of terms? I think there's this idea that you see in a lot of that rhetoric around nose to tail dining in a very aestheticized setting, that if you if you really treat something as precious and you savor it, that you're somehow not squandering the life that was involved in getting it to you and getting that beautiful thing onto your plate. Whereas What I'm wondering is, is that actually the case? I mean, if we look at the facts, if we look at the the kind of settings in which this, this kind of dining is being done, you're looking at whole restaurant cultures dedicated to a kind of new kind of carnivorousness and this sort of like endowing meat eating with with kind of new forms of cultural capital that create a different niche that isn't just kind of like broy barbecue macho meat culture into something that kind of pretends to be a bit more cerebral and a bit more um considered and there's nothing moronic about this aesthetic i suppose but at the same time the premises behind it are perhaps not as intellectually robust as perhaps is imagined and what simone ve says about looking at something and eating it being incompatible how beauty is something that necessarily cannot be satisfyingly consumed. It's this kind of aesthetic quality that doesn't ever allow us to be satisfied. It kind of runs completely counter to this idea that you could make something beautiful and therefore end up being more more kind of restrained around your relationship with it. It's like beauty invites this kind of like bottomless or like limitless limitless fascination like you see people return to beautiful works of art again and again and 
try and hug them and <laughs> touch them and like can't get close enough to them. It's like this idea that, you know, we'll never actually be full of beauty. Beauty is not the same thing as satisfaction. So like, what if we were to return our kind of attitude towards food to one that was actually engaged with the use value of that food, like in, in satisfying us to some extent, rather than the aesthetic value, as it were, which is not to say that I don't think that like a very meaningfully pleasurable relationship can be cultivated with food that isn't meat. Like there's so many other things that you could um, that you could indulge in that kind of sensibility in relation to you know, it doesn't have to be meat. And when it is meat, like the cost to animal life is actually just so significant. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I'm saying about beauty. Like we could make food beautiful, sure. But if we're making meat beautiful, like we shouldn't kid ourselves that that is somehow encouraging us to cultivate a deeper respect towards animal life and, and, a, and a more restrained relationship with a more restrained approach to how much of it we destroy. And would it be right to say that Vey argues that many things that we think of as crimes uh, precisely involve that attempt to consume that which is beautiful? Well, it's kind of, it's, it's complicated to some extent by her theology. This idea of, of there being some kind of sin in trying to eat what is only supposed to be looked at. The philosopher Becca Rothfeld writes about this in relation to Simone Vey and, and actually concludes that, you know, because that's going to be the case with everything. Like we might as well just gorge ourselves, which, you know, has a lot of merit to it when you're talking about it in the context of trying to come up with an alternative to the idea of policing people's diets. And, you know, Simone Weil ended up starving herself to death. So, you know, that's maybe not the route we want to go down. But um, yeah, I mean, when, when the specific object of what you are talking about is like another living thing, then you have to take that into consideration as well. Like, what does it mean to treat an animal just as like any other comestible that, that decays? Like, you know, can we be applying the same kinds of principles? Um, you know, Simone Weil seemed to think that it was better to like starve yourself and die so that you could be with God and be in a place where maybe you could have a more complete form of consumption, a kind of like actual encounter with the beautiful. But yeah, while we're, when we're, if, we're, if we're dealing with like being on earth and, you know, what we do when we be on earth, then perhaps, yeah, perhaps maybe beauty is not the redemptive, redemptive thing that we think it is when it comes to organising our relationship with, with meat specifically. Yes, and you also talk about the psychoanalytic theorist Jacques Lacan and how important the idea of lack was to him. And you suggest that our sense of lack and our inability to fulfil ourselves needs to be sort of positivized and seen as a potential asset. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not just that we want to appear needy when we're loving something, and in, in this case, loving animals. It's like we want to somehow make something edifying of it. And that's all well and good. And like, maybe, you know, that is one profound way of characterizing a love relationship. But like, it's not a way that kind of lends itself very well to, you know, thinking about a relationship that we want to rid of violence or that we want to make more just, for example. Lauren Belong summarises really well this kind of like psychoanalytic idea of love as wanting to have 
the lover exactly where you can love them. It's like there's so much of our own needs going on as well in this kind of like filling of a filling of a void that questions of justice become not just secondary, but kind of like orthogonal in a way, I suppose. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. It really does help to bring in new listeners. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. I'll be back with the regular show soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.